0: The story of the Industrial Revolution is also the story of a massive expansion in finance in the form of stocks, but also in bonds, which is essentially business debt. And so it's possible for these large enterprises to borrow, essentially, from pools of investors.
1: Imagine a world in which there was no access to consumer debt for large purchases. If you don't have the cash on hand to buy something, you cannot. You might work on a farm hundreds of years ago, living with your family, living hand to mouth. What you're able to grow, gather, or kill is what feeds you and your family. One day, your plow breaks and you're not a craftsman. You don't know how to repair it. This year saw a bad harvest. So you don't have the cash to pay for the repair or to buy a new one. You are, in other words, in trouble. These days, you might go to the bank or go to a website and get a personal or a business loan in just a few minutes, but not back then. Back then, if you wanted something, you likely either needed the cash on hand or you needed to be able to make the thing yourself. Your plow breaking, in other words, could prove to be the ruin of your family. In the world in which we live today, we consume far, far more than we did back then, and debt is omnipresent. We're swimming in it. The journey between those two points, between a cash economy and one fueled by debt, is fascinating and critical to understanding our world today. This is Riches & Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. This is the first of a two-part episode on consumer debt in the United States. This first part tracks the evolution of consumer debt from something that was frowned upon and largely non-existent to something that was generally accepted and widely available in the 20th century. In short order, I'll be releasing the second part of this episode, in which we explore and learn about the course consumer debt has taken since the early 1900s and how it's become ubiquitous and much maligned. Today, we're joined by Professor Lewis Hyman. He's the director for the Institute for Workplace Studies at the ILR School at Cornell University and the author of a number of great books, including Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary, Borrow, The American Way of Debt, and Debtor Nation, The History of America in Red Ink. You can find out more at his website, www.lewishyman.com, and that's Hyman, H-Y-M-A-N. And he has the distinct honor, I think, of having been one of my very first history professors back in college. In fact, I think he's one of the guys that I attribute majoring in history to. So Lewis, really glad to reconnect, and thank you so much for joining us.
0: Well, it's a great pleasure to be here today. Thanks, Alex. And I'm glad that I led you astray.
1: Uh, My mom was very angry. I was going to major in economics, but, you know, inveterate history lover, I guess. I was really excited to speak with you because you're an expert in a lot of interesting things, including consumerism in the country. And I think most appropriate for today, debt in the country. And debt in particular is almost a forgotten thing these days. It's as natural as living and breathing in a lot of ways. And despite it being sort of forgotten and hidden, it powers just a gigantic amount of our economy. When you look at the United States and our GDP, a huge portion of it is driven by consumer debt. And so I'm really interested to explore a little bit the arc of that concept, that idea of consumer debt. But I suppose to start, can you bring us up to speed a little bit? When you think about consumer debt and have studied it in the past, how would you define it? What is it?
0: Yeah, it's an important question because this is the magic of history. You take the everyday and you say, wait a minute, there's a backstory to that. That thing has changed over time or even it may not have existed. So when we think about consumer debt, it seems impossible that it has not always existed ways to borrow. From businesses, borrow from proprietors. But when we start to think about it, you realize this makes a lot of sense that, in fact, it's not the consumer debt part that is the interesting part of consumer debt or the historical part, but the idea of a consumer. So if you think about the consumer, you have to think about what happens when you're not consuming, which is working for a wage. And so that wage labor. And consumption come into, as opposites, come into being in the mid to late 19th century. And so consumer debt also follows that trajectory as a product of the industrial age, as something to balance the accounts between how much people get and how much they want to spend. And so the story of consumer debt begins in sort of the middle of the industrial age, and consumer debt fundamentally is about, you know, one person or institution giving money to somebody else and expecting repayment at some future date, but of course it becomes much more complicated thereafter.
1: And so you answered I think what was my second question, which is just when when did this concept of consumer debt come about? Because I, I suppose it's interesting from a historical perspective to think about the idea of was there even a concept of a consumer borrowing in the 1800s or the 1700s? Go back and back and back, or was that a fairly alien concept to them compared to how normal that is to us today?
0: Yeah, it was like completely different uh, in the sense that people borrowed, and you know, you'd always have these stories of you know aristocrats borrowing from their friends and ending up in debtor's prison or something along those lines. But for most people, average working people, you could borrow only on an interpersonal level. You could borrow from your brother or, God forbid, your brother-in-law, but you wouldn't be able to just go to a bank and borrow money. There certainly weren't payday lenders or things like that. There were you know, loan sharks. Um, certainly, by the end, by you know, by the industrial age. But this this was sort of highly aberrant. And of course, the story of lots of debtors uh, was the story of business debts. So, this idea of consumer debt is itself a strange idea because the assumption, at least in the United States, was that if you're borrowing, you're borrowing for a business purpose for your, your enterprise or for your farm or for something like that. That's why one of the reasons we have such liberal bankruptcy laws in the United States is because we want to foster you know, business investment and business growth. And so the idea of an individual borrowing simply for their consumption is highly aberrant. There, of course, were mortgages and such. But they were much more unusual, and they certainly were not considered a good idea in the late 19th and early 20th centuries.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, but prior to the 20th century, for most of human history, not paying back a debt was considered a criminal offense as opposed to a civil
0: offense. Is that right? Yeah, you went to prison until you could pay back your debt. I mean, this is something that is an extremely serious matter. The idea that we would simply have a mechanism to wipe away your debts uh, did not exist. The idea of, of it's on the investor's side to account for their risk is is a very, very modern idea. And in fact, a uniquely American idea at first.
1: Yeah, you don't hear about debtors prison all that often these days, or indeed even reading about the US, that strikes me as something that was much more common over in say the United Kingdom and in Great Britain.
0: I mean, America is number one in a lot of things, including consumer debt. So we are pioneers in thinking about how to make a business of consumer debt, which is a lot of the, what I've written about.
1: You mentioned something that I think is fascinating, and or at least you're you're kind of tiptoeing on the edges of it, which is it strikes me in reading your work and in thinking about it, that it may be helpful to think about debt as a product instead of just an idea, just an abstract concept. Is that how you think about it?
0: Absolutely. And I think this is one of the, in the history I write, it's about that story, that narrative of how debt goes from being a personal relationship to being a business relationship for consumers. You know, debt as a site of investment. So how do we lend money to individual consumers and make money off it? And that's the story of the 20th century. So in the late 19th century, the big money was in making steel, not lending money to steel workers. And so what we see over the course of the 20th century is this sort of development of an expertise in how to lend, a development of new sources of capital to lend to these working and middle-class people. And of course, whenever those borrowers dry up, figuring out new ways to entice people to borrow even more, which gets us to that World Bank graph. New veins to mine, as it were. And it's a curious way to think about debt, right? As a product uh, to be sold, as a product to be invested in, because we want it to be some sort of transparent backstory to the rest of the the operations of the market. But in a lot of ways, it's right at the center and at the forefront of lots of different kinds of innovation with very real consequences for how we live. Well,
1: and the human element, I I say somewhat tongue-in-cheek, you know, new veins to mine for finding new borrowers, but those are humans. It's always struck me as just a very different product than literally going out and sticking a well into the ground to bring up oil or whatnot you're impacting people's lives. And if they can't pay you back, it's a very odd product from that regard.
0: And there's always been a dubiousness about this business, right? I mean, neither a borrower nor a lender be, but also usury laws. Usury laws that forbade people from lending money uh, from the medieval era all the way through the early 20th century at a rate of interest that would be profitable. Hence the creation of both loan sharks And reforms in the 1920s that allowed for the very first time for businesses to lend to working people at a rate that would be profitable for their loans, which at a rate of about 2% a month, which is just an astonishing amount to us today, but at the time was considered better than the alternative, which was loan sharking.
1: So that's a great segue into what has struck me as kind of the broad divide in your work between debt being a good thing and debt being a bad thing. And the 20th century seems to be that demising line, so to speak. Let's start with the bad, because I, I find that period of time fascinating because it's so alien to the way we live today. You can get a credit card online now. You don't even have to talk to anybody anymore. I mean, it's just incredibly easy and frictionless. But a big question in my head is... Before consumer debt was widely available like it is today, how did spending work? What if you needed to make a, a big purchase could you do? If you needed to get a plow or a car later or you know, pick your big purchase? What if you didn't have enough cash?
0: Well, I think this is this is the the essential question. You know, how do we get buyers to buy our expensive things? Do we force them to pay in cash up front, which necessarily reduces the number of people who can buy it? Or do you figure out a way to space out purchases over time? Now, for businesses, there was ways to do this. You could get a mortgage for land, you could get a mortgage for any kind of commercial space. And a lot of the story of the settlement and conquest of the West is driven by land mortgages for farms, but also installment contracts for you know, mechanical threshers, the McCormick Reaper, or even Singer sewing machines, the kinds of things that are necessary if you're going to make a life on the frontier.
1: And were those installment contracts somewhat akin to what they are today, as in you don't really own the item you're paying installments on until you finish paying those installments? They they could take your Singer sewing machine away?
0: Yeah, and today we hardly ever use that except for car loans or houses in a lot of ways, Uh, at least with houses that you get equity back. With a car loan, you don't. And I think this is is, repossession is a central feature of installment contracts. And those become pretty common in the 1880s, 1890s, 1910s. But if you wanted cash, uh, there was no real way for an ordinary person to do that. Rich people could do it if they went to a bank where they did a lot of business investor conducted their business affairs, and they could get something called an accommodation loan. But that was really on the sly. And so the, even then, it was a kind of personal relationship with the banker. So this is the this is the long story of this. And the, and the, and the negative part, of course, the bad side is that you could borrow all this money, pay it back steadily, and then default. Uh, if there was a bad harvest or a business cycle or something else went awry, and then you would lose all this money, which is exactly why debt had such a negative reputation. And of course, through the late 19th century, as opposed to now, it was a period of deflation so that the dollar was becoming stronger, which sounds great, except if you're in debt. And then if you're in debt, it actually becomes more expensive for you to pay back your debts over time.
1: Ah, because next year's dollars are more valuable than this year's dollars. And so you're essentially, what you're paying back is more
0: expensive every year. Exactly, exactly. So this is the story of the sort of the grind of mortgages, and in a lot of ways, the rise of populism in the late 19th century. So this is where that deep negative perspective comes from, that it is something illicit it is something, you know, both from you know usury laws, but also from reality. And it's also something that, you know, is not seen as part of a well considered financial life. And that story changes once you get to the nineteen twenties. And you were talking about cars before, and cars are actually a very important part of this story about this transformation.
1: Putting a kind of final cherry on top of the debt-is-bad era of human history, I, I pulled a couple quotes from the Bible. One was from Luke, book 14, chapter 20. It says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? The other one's from Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. And I just don't know how you can get more black and white than that. It's saying two things in the Bible. On the one hand, don't do something unless you have the cash to pay for it right now. And on the other hand, if you're borrowing money, you're literally a slave to the lender.
0: Yeah, the Bible, as always, is not very subtle. This is a very clear perspective on the nature of debt. But of course, it's at odds with capitalism. And But I think it emphasizes just how our conceptions of investment and capital are just so recent right only a few hundred years old and this mentality of capitalism the idea that yeah i can borrow at three percent if i'm going to invest at ten percent why should i save up that money it it restrains the growth of my enterprise and for businesses this is of course a very good way you'd want to build that tower if it's going to create jobs and it's going to create value uh, for your community but it's a different story if you're a consumer because you're maybe you're not creating any value, maybe you're not creating, you're definitely not creating jobs in the sense of creating a business, and so this this quality of debt for consumers is quite different than with business debt because for consumers the the key question is, okay, I'm borrowing against the future, right? Because money is always paid back from future earnings. You know, will I have more money in the future? Uh, will this allow? It, will money be cheaper in the future? Will it be inflationary, deflationary? And this is one of the key differences between that period of the middle of the 20th century. This, for me, is one of the key things about how to think about whether debt is good or bad.
1: So, painting a picture from the the quote unquote debt is bad era, you have an uncertain future. You have kind of the nasty, brutish, and short idea of people's lives for much of human history. You have debt being a criminal offense. And you have deflation, which makes your next year's dollars more expensive than this year's. So you have a whole host of factors that I think behaviorally, perhaps, are even driving people towards not borrowing money just because the the world, the economy was set up to push people towards just using the cash that they had on hand to consume. Is that a fair painting, so to speak, of the ideas?
0: And there's one more thing that's so crucial, which is that capital always is a choice to invest. Where do you invest your capital? And in the 19th century, there was simply an astonishing number of industrial sites for investment. Those steel factories just made absurd amounts of money. So why would you go to the trouble of finding lots and lots of little people to lend money to? And then maybe you couldn't really track, right? It's before we had databases, before we had social security numbers, uh, before we even had standard names in a lot of ways. So this is something that just doesn't make sense from the perspective of, as an investor, as a bank, where do I put my money?
1: The steel mill, you did need a lot of capital. The returns were fantastic, but you needed a lot of upfront cash to do that. You're a business endeavor of some sort. Was there debt in that period of time as we're kind of evolving from pre-industrial into the throes of the Industrial Revolution? Was there debt available for those sorts of consortiums?
0: I mean, the, the story of the Industrial Revolution is also the story of an, a massive expansion in finance, both in the form of stocks, which are, you probably think of as stocks, you know, those are shares in, in some kind of venture, but also in bonds, which is essentially business debt. So that beginning with the canals being built in the early 19th century, there's a market created for bonds, uh, initially for these public kinds of enterprises, but then corporations can issue bonds too. And so it's possible for these large enterprises to borrow essentially from pools of investors. And they can say, look, we're going to invest this bond, and we're going to do this with the money, and we're going to make this return. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. But there you have railroads and these giant corporations and everything else. So part of the story is this story of bankruptcy and bonds and overbuilding capacity. But somehow, we excuse that as business, as sort of the normal operations of business, the necessary operation of business.
1: Ah, so we're already seeing seeing moving away from this idea of debt as a criminal offense. It's just, it's just business. That's just business.
0: And look what's possible now that we have these bonds. Look what's possible now that we have these laws.
1: So we may have answered this already, but I was curious, your answer to the question, was there a historical moment in, in your research that you said, aha, that's where it happened. That's that's kind of where debt went from being this bad thing to a good thing, from being something that sent you to debtor's prison. And I know debtor's prison may have gone away far before, but something that was viewed very negatively to something that was kind of the, the jet fuel for capitalism, so to
0: speak. It begins to change around 1920 in a lot of different ways. And one of the reasons it begins to change is that at a very basic level in the 19th century there was the problem of scarcity and in the 20th century there was the problem of abundance so in the 19th century if you made something somebody wanted to buy it more or less because we didn't have anything it's hard to imagine how little people had in the 19th century and by the 20th century though our industrial machinery is so productive it can just churn endless amounts of stuff out that you want everyday kinds of stuff but also it's creating new things that are technical marvels of the era mostly driven by electricity so new kinds of electrified vacuum cleaners and you know washing machines and refrigerators and all the kinds of things that if you want if you had an option you definitely wanted to have but they were expensive Now, that is coupled in the 1920s with the rise of good-paying industrial jobs for the very first time. So there was a slow growth in wages through the late 19th and early 20th century. But as we think about the roaring 20s, the reason they were so roaring was that in urban America, industrial jobs began to pay better. And as they began to pay better, people had a sense that, oh, I can borrow against my future income and that I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have, and in the future I'm going to be paid more, so why shouldn't I have a refrigerator today? And this kind of installment contract for everyday kinds of goods begins with cars around 1919, when cars are beginning to reach the end of the pool of buyers who can afford to buy them in cash.
1: Was it 1908 when the Model T came out? Yeah, yeah, you
0: have a very good memory from the class. Uh, yeah, so this is this is the story of the Model T eventually reaching the end, and General Motors reaching the end of its available pool. But of course, the Model Ford is very against debt, so he doesn't allow installment contracts on Ford cars since the late 1920s. Uh, he sees debt as a way to keep Americans in thrall, uh, unfortunately, to the Jews. Uh, so this is all part of his anti-Semitic vision, of what finance is as opposed to production
1: did that spur a lot of outside of ford financing mechanisms and companies
0: exactly it is exactly what happened so the beginning of auto finance comes from independent auto financiers so people who said hey looks cars are expensive i bet joe down the street would like to buy a car if only he had a little time to do it And I'll try and do it. And so around 1919, 1920, 1921, you see all these auto finance companies just pop into existence all across the country and just, you know, make 10x capital and returns in one year, begin to rapidly expand. Now, General Motors recognizes this by the mid 1920s and begins something called, well, they had something called the General Motors Acceptance Corporation, which to that point had financed. The inventory of car dealers, but not the purchase of the cars by consumers. And they see how successful this is and they start lending money to consumers as well. So it's really the story of the car. And then those independent installment companies begin to move into other kinds of businesses like financing vacuum cleaners.
1: Fascinating. So you have early 1900s, you have the switch from scarcity to abundance, and that's interesting. You mentioned that it, it it strikes me that the person, the average person living in the 19th century, is probably just kind of an alien to us, to what you said about how how few things people back then had. It was a wholly different world. you You have the shirt that you wear for two weeks at a time and wash every now and then, and now we have dozens of shirts. So you're going from that world of scarcity to a world in which you have functionally limitless things to buy. And maybe not quite that way in the early 1900s, but transitioning that way. And then is it fair to say the car was perhaps the single biggest catalyst to make debt an acceptable part of day-to-day consumer life?
0: It was definitely the start because everybody wanted to have a car. So if you ever had to ride a horse or uh, an electrified trolley, or whatever, riding in your own car is great. Uh, you get to go wherever you want. And in the early 20th century, cities were still kind of lawless when it came to cars. You could just kind of drive around and like run people down. And there's all these stories of Vanderbilts just killing people with their cars and getting off. So there's a sense that you are some kind of entitled lordlet, you know, running the streets of Manhattan if you have a car. So this is why cars are just so exhilarating. And of course, once you have a car, you can go off in your car, which has a roof, and do the things you can do in a, a bedroom, uh, but in a car. And so, this is part of that Roaring Twenties uh, sexual liberation of that moment. So this, this, yeah. So that the car is important; these electrified goods are important. But you also see the legalization of cash loans in the 1920s, which is really important for working people to make it from paycheck to paycheck. So even if those paychecks are rising, you don't have much savings.
1: And when you say cash loans, cash loans are are what we'd think of uh, of modern debt. What is a cash loan?
0: You walk into uh, an industrial, they were called industrial lenders or small loan lenders, and you'd say, I need to borrow $200 to pay my coal bill, or to buy shoes, or to bring over my brother from Poland, and you would get $200. And then you would pay it back over time uh, from your future wages. Now, they they would not lend to people who own their own business. They would not lend to people who had collateral. They would only lend to people who had paychecks, a steady paycheck at a steady address. And this is just a totally bewilderingly different way of thinking about lending than had existed, you know, even 20 years earlier.
1: I've wondered about that, that very fact, because when you go to get a mortgage on a house, for instance, these days, if you're self-employed, it's materially more difficult to get the house, to get the mortgage, I should say, because you have to prove up your income and provide the profit and loss statement for the business. And what lenders really want is a steady paycheck and a steady address. Did you ever encounter a reason why that paradigm emerged?
0: Well, it started from actually reformers who wanted to think about how we could lend to working class people who at that point were either going to loan sharks or going without coal or going without shoes for their children. And so they said, well, how do we make it possible for these people who have an asset, which is their future earnings? to borrow against that in a way that the wealthy can borrow. And so they conducted a series of reforms uh, to pass laws around the country to enable this kind of lending to occur. So today we think of payday lenders as incredibly exploitative, but in the 1920s, they still charged people a lot of interest, but they were kind of liberatory for a lot of working people.
1: This is the end of the first part of a two-part episode on consumer debt in the United States. We've walked through the evolution of consumer debt from something that would literally send you to prison to something in the early 20th century that was a much more normal and accepted part of everyday life. Our next release will continue the conversation with Lewis Hyman and focus on the sea change consumer debt underwent in the 20th century, including the many problems its mass adoption exposed. Like Riches and Power and subscribe. And I'm looking forward to you joining me as we conclude this conversation. This has been a production of Riches and Power. Hosted by Alex Dubay, Edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2022 by Wesley Capital, LLC.